Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We return to our summer sermon series with a very important question. The question is, is how can there be a good, loving, powerful, merciful God and there still be suffering in the world? Also, what does free will have to do with all of that? You are listening to Reason to Believe, If God is Good and Powerful, Why Is There So Much Suffering? by Rev. Christy Mannion. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We thank God for it. This morning, we return to our summer series on apologetics, and we're opening up God's word to guide us on one of the deeper questions of human life. Why is there so much pain in this world? And how does God fit into that? I was six years old and in first grade when this problem came home for me. One of my classmates in Denver fell off a forklift that he was riding with his brother. The forklift ran over him and killed him. His name was Andy, and I can still remember my mom's face and the edge of the door frame from our garage when she came in to tell me the news. I can remember how my heart lurched at six years old and tears came to my eyes. Such things as this should not happen, but they do. This thorn in our fragile flesh has kept sincere Christians and faithful scholars busy, puzzling it out over the centuries. Philosophers and human communities, going all the way back to Job's friends, have tried to explain how God's goodness and yet this pain of God's good creation can come together logically. They've tried to justify or explain God's ways in in ways that human minds can understand. God, if you are good, if you are paying attention, if you are powerful, then why? Why don't you stop the suffering? Why does this world hurt so much? The question of how a good God can seem to stand by and watch as his creatures that he loves suffer. That question is a rocky coastline where Christian faith can run aground, where the boats of our souls get swamped. 
So it's important for me to say at the outset of delving into this question that the best time to build the scaffolding of our convictions about God's goodness, about his faithfulness, about the existence of evil in this world is when we're not currently suffering. So if you are in deep distress today, I don't pretend that the reasons that we'll explore together will be satisfying for you. But I do pray that in this time you will hear about a God who is good and a God who loves us, who never leaves us, no matter what. So we open to Romans 8, which includes sentences like these. We know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through God who loved us. And these verses are profoundly comforting when we're bone deep, sure, that there is nothing we endure in this life that's outside the control of a good God. When we can trust that the arc of history and the arc of our lives is pointing toward God's good purposes. And yet honest readers, honest believers who come to scripture can also be deeply troubled by these verses. Because if I can't see how God is working something for good, whose problem is that? Is that God's problem? Is that my problem? Is it my perception of bad circumstances that's simply wrong and I need to change it somehow? Is it a sign that I somehow don't love Jesus enough if I can't identify how he is at work to make something bad turn out for good? Or dare we say it, is it possible that somehow God isn't the all-knowing, all-powerful overflowing source of all good that we say that he is. Well, one deceptively attractive option is to respond to the problem this way. Well, you could say bad things happen in the world, but it's because out there alongside the goodness and the loving kindness and the faithfulness of our God is this equal and opposite power, Satan. He's a roaring lion, and he's looking for people to devour. And tragedies in this life, well, they come because over here we have the goodness of God, and over here we have the designs of Satan. And there's this ongoing struggle between the forces, one, one to the other. And I've tipped my hand already by saying that's a deceptively attractive argument. But for Christians who are eager to defend God's goodness, who want to avoid any hint at all that God could possibly be the author of suffering, that idea seems to make some sense. And yet it strips God of another character trait, another attribute that we want to hold up alongside of his goodness. His power, his omnipotence. And so saying that God's power doesn't extend even over terrible things gets us pretty close to the ballpark of a third century belief system called Manichaeanism, which saw good and evil as these equal but opposite forces in the world. And the early church said, nope, we can't go there. 
That's not the God of Scripture. So if we want to say, and we do, that God is all good and all knowing and all powerful, we have to look somewhere else to try to answer this question, to shed a little bit of light on the suffering of the world. The most compelling response, logically, to the problem has to do with human free will. It claims that puppets aren't manipulated by a God behind the curtain who's pulling the strings of all of our decisions. Instead, God created people who are genuinely free. They are capable of morally significant decisions. They have the choice to turn against God and against each other. This genuine freedom to freely love God is a great good, so the argument goes, that can only result from the real possibility that humans would choose against God. And so with the first sin, the first choice to turn against God, moral evil comes into the world and riding its coattails comes natural evil, disasters and disease what Paul and the Christians after him call the groaning of creation. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis asks this, why did God give humans free will? Because free will, although it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy that's worth having. A world of creatures that worked like machines would hardly be worth creating. The happiness God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other. And for that, they must be free. Of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. And apparently, Lewis says, God thought that was a risk worth taking. By the time we get to the eighth chapter of Romans, Paul has spent the first chapter sounding the clear message that despite the groanings of creation, despite the human suffering of this life, God is neither powerless nor asleep at the switch while his good creation is suffering under the consequences of sin. Nope, Paul says, God in Christ is already acted definitively to rescue his people from themselves, from their inability to keep the law, from their sin, and from the suffering that comes from the shadow side of human free will. In Christ, God has been patiently working over the whole course of history to show how very much he is for us, despite the suffering that we endure. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Counts off seven aspects of suffering, the totality of suffering. And then Paul goes on in a startling way. Have you ever noticed those two little lines from Psalm 44 plucked right in there in the middle of Paul's argument? Two little lines about sheep waiting to die. For your sake, we face death all day long. 
We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. What are those lines from the Old Testament doing there? We can't peek into Paul's mind. We can't ask him. But we can explore that a little bit. Psalm 44 paints a vivid picture of the disorientation that God's people experience. The writer protests the suffering of God's people in the hands of enemy armies. He wonders why God seems to have abandoned his people, especially, as he maintains, because they have not abandoned his covenant. They've kept their end of the bargain, the writer says. The psalm ends by saying, in effect, wake up, God. Stop sleeping. Get up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. In his reference to the psalms, Paul tells a true story that bears acknowledging. He tells the true old story that the suffering of God's people isn't new. It was part of life for the first singers of the psalm. It was part of life for the Roman Christians who had been kicked out of the city of Rome by the emperor. It's still part of life for us, for Christians all over the world. Yet quoting the Old Testament also allows Paul to draw a line in the sand to make a sharp contrast between life before Jesus and life ever after. In Jesus, God has shown like never before how awake he is, how aware he is, how keenly attuned he is to the plight of his people, how determined, how conclusive, how far-reaching that love goes. Paul says that those who are suffering and looking to God for rescue see that rescue in the face of Jesus. Romans 8.31, God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There is no doubt in Paul's mind about God's commitment to see us safely home in Christ. Because this God in Jesus suffered terribly himself for us. In Jesus, God entered history, entered the muck and the frailty and the confusion and the uncertainty. And he freely chose sacrificial love to bear the weight of our sin, the shadow side of our free will. He did it for us. And so God's goodness and power and his knowledge have this creation so fully in his hands that even in these terrible things, God is working to accomplish our greatest good. Hearts and minds and hands, wills that work properly again. Reconciliation with God. Restored relationship with him. But I want to go back to our initial question for Romans 8.28. Does Romans 8.28, the conviction that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, mean that we should be able to perceive God's good purpose in each and everything, 
including things like paper cuts and stubbed toes. More pointedly, does that verse mean that the tragedy of my friend Andy's death at age six was actually somehow a good thing? Dr. John Cooper is an emeritus professor of philosophical theology at Calvin Seminary, and he writes about this. He describes the cases of Christians who look for years to find out what good thing God is up to in some instance of suffering. If they can't find an answer, are they blind? Cooper asks. No, he says. Paul's reference to all things in Romans 8.28 probably doesn't mean each and every last thing. More likely, Cooper writes, it means the totality of things. God may allow some instances of evil and suffering that don't lead directly to a greater good. But his whole plan ordained from before the foundation of the world does work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. Cooper goes on, God's plan includes bad things that God does directly to turn into our good. And sometimes we get to see it. It includes perplexing things whose purpose takes a while to figure out. It includes awful things that are much worse than any good we can see that comes from them. But all of these things work together for the ultimate good according to God's plan. So friends, the Bible gives us lots of space to tell the truth about how bad things can be. And it also gives us great reason to affirm how good he still is. One of the greatest gifts of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection and ascension is the coming of the Holy Spirit. The very presence of God with us, come what may. C.S. Lewis testifies to God's silent, loving presence in the face of pain after the death of his wife. Lewis first published his reflections about this in a book called A Grief Observed, and he did it under a pen name because The reflections in it were so raw. In the book, Lewis asks God, can I meet my wife again only if I learn to love you so much that I don't care whether I meet her or not? Consider, Lord, how that looks to us. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but a rather special sort of no answer. It isn't the silence of the locked door. It's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze. As though God shook his head, not in refusal, but in waving the question. Like, peace, child, you don't understand. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable, Lewis asks. Quite easily, I should think. In the end, brothers and sisters, we can't argue our way through the problem of pain without taking steps of faith along the way. But we can hear from others and testify ourselves 
to the presence of a loving God who is with us and for us, come what may. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you are great, and we know that our minds can't fully grasp you, and yet we want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to walk with you through this life, and you've made that possible for us in Jesus Christ. So we thank you for him today, and we lift up those in our community and around this world who are looking for your goodness, and we pray that you will show yourself to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.